Welcome to Season 2 of St. Agnes Quick Talks. To support our podcast, visit us at churchofstagnes.org. To kick off Season 2 of Quick Talks, we've invited Monsignor James P. Shea, President of University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. He is here to talk to us today about a new book, a book that was released by University of Mary Press in 2020, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age. My name is Monsignor James Shea, and I'm honored to serve as President of the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. I'm also honored by this request to speak on the St. Agnes podcast a little bit about a book that the University of Mary published this past year, entitled From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age. Again, the title of the book is From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age. It's not a long book, less than 100 pages, and if you want a copy, you can find it at the University of Mary bookstore online or at Amazon.com. The book presents a sweeping vision of the moment we find ourselves in at this time in history as believers, as disciples of Jesus, and as faithful members of the Church. It poses and addresses important questions about the ways that individual believers and the institutions of the Church, such as Catholic schools and universities, are called to think and act in this moment in time in order most effectively to spread the gospel with all its potency, all of its power, all of its beauty, in the midst of a culture which is increasingly hostile to the Catholic way of seeing the world. So what I'll do in our brief time together is I'll offer a summary of the vision we tried to capture in the book, and I hope it's of some help to you. I really do, because it was meant for that. It was meant as an encouragement, first of all, for all of our faculty, and staff, and our students here at the University of Mary. But it was also meant as an encouragement beyond in the wider church as to how we can be cheerful and joyful warriors for Christ in what is shaping up to be a really difficult time to be a Catholic. As president of a faithful Catholic university, of course, my hope is also that some of the key ideas in the book help us to pass the faith down to this rising generation, which is a central obligation of believers in every age. I've been haunted by an image ever since I've begun interacting with the ideas that are brought forth in the book. And that image is this. I was raised probably in the last gasp of what we would call Christendom. Christendom was defined once by the Venerable Fulton Sheen as being this. Well, he said this in a conference in 1974. He said that, Christendom is economic, political, and social life as inspired by Christian principles. Then he says, that's ending, we've seen it die. He wrote that in 1974, or he said that in 1974 in a speech. He said, we're at the end of Christendom, not of Christianity, not of the church, but of Christendom. Then he says, Christendom is the economic, political, and social life as inspired by Christian principles. This was something he spoke in 1974, and I was born in 1975. And I feel like I was raised here in rural North Dakota in what's probably the last gasp of Christendom. Uh, When I was growing up in a small town of about 250 people, Hazleton, North Dakota, uh, everybody was on the same team. My parents, my teachers, 
my coaches, the Catholic priest, even the Lutheran minister, everybody was on the same page. And they understood that they had been given a small group of young people uh, and that it was their job in about 18 years to adjust them, to prepare them for the world, and to make sure that their vision of life, that their beliefs and their convictions and their values were well-formed. And what I mean by that is formed according to Christian principles. Everybody was on the same team. My younger brother is now raising a family of six children on the same farm that my parents raised their eight children on, in the same town. But the situation for him is vastly different. And that's because the cultural situation has really eroded and fallen out from under his feet. And so he and his wife, my brother and his wife, have a much sterner battle in terms of raising their children to know and to love God. The team is not as wide, and the culture is not as friendly to the convictions, the values, and the beliefs that he wants his children to grow up with, which, of course, are beliefs about Jesus Christ and his saving promises. So let me just take a moment to step back uh, and to give a, an overall kind of sweeping summary of the book, from Christendom to Apostolic Mission. We begin by talking about how every human society possesses a moral and spiritual imaginative vision, which is a set of assumptions and a way of looking at the world which is largely taken for granted and not argued for. These fundamental assumptions, this imaginative vision, provides an atmosphere for the way that that society's members breathe, it provides like a soil in which the society's institutions can take root and grow. This vision, an imaginative vision, is a holistic way of seeing things. It's, it's a complete and, a, and an interconnected, total way of seeing things. It's often secured by a religion, but it goes beyond religion to include a moral code, an accepted ideal of a good person, clear categories of success and failure, of economic and political values or legal codes, even morals and matter, uh, uh, more, uh, I'm sorry, even manners and modes of entertainment. And when a culture's vision is seriously contested, this society, this culture will go into crisis until either its original vision is constituted again, reconstituted, or when that vision is overthrown. And, and another overarching vision takes its place. When we're talking about this being an imaginative vision, we don't mean that it's, first of all, make-believe. Rather, we're referring to the human ability to transcend our immediate circumstances of time and place such that we're able to, somehow, to carry a whole world in our minds, embracing both the past and the future and invisible realities all at once. So an imaginative vision forms the basis of how a society or a group within a society or an individual within a society move and make decisions and pursue one path rather than another. That is, an imaginative vision forms the basis for action. It's tremendously important to identify what a culture's imaginative vision is in order to understand what's happening what the action in the society means. So there's a contrast here that arises within a Christian understanding. In other words, how do Christians move 
in response to or within this uh, societal understanding of imaginative vision. So there are two modes, two ways in which the Christian vision can interact with a society in terms of the building of the kingdom. One way is the Christendom mode. The other way is the apostolic mode. When the Christian narrative of the human drama and its corresponding moral order have become prominent in a given society, then a Christendom culture emerges. A Christendom society is one that goes forward under the imaginative vision and the narrative which is provided by Christianity. When the culture is a Christendom culture, then the church operates in a specific way. When the culture, though, is not a Christendom culture, then the church must shift and enter into a different mode of engagement, which is called the apostolic mode of engagement. When we're talking about the apostolic mode of engagement here, for instance, we're talking about how the church had to operate in the first three centuries of its existence during the time of persecution, remember? It's also the way in which, even in Christendom times, even, for instance, in medieval Europe, when the church had already won the day in terms of the imaginative vision, that's the, the apostolic mode was still engaged in, it was still employed in mission situations. Everybody always understood that you didn't do the, things the same way in Paris or Madrid as you would do them in Papua New Guinea, for instance, or Brazil at the time of the evangelization of Central and South America. So Christendom, a Christendom mode, a Christendom situation, brings with it both advantages and disadvantages. And it's helpful for us just to spend a little bit of time thinking about what those are. The advantages of Christendom, due to the success of the church's missionary activity and winning converts and bringing alive the culture, then a Christendom culture emerges. And the culture is in general alignment with the truths of the faith and thus it's in general alignment with reality. And Christianity holds the field in the key institutions of society. Christianity dominates here the grand narrative. So the primary need in a Christendom time is the need for what sometimes is understood to be a bad word, but actually which is a quite noble word. The primary need in Christendom is maintenance. Maintenance. Christianity doesn't come easy in a fallen world. And so there's a constant need to maintain and deepen faith and institutions in a Christendom time. Now, uh, Christendom time also has disadvantages. First of all, there's a tendency toward laxity and complacency, and that can grow. And we also begin to find a strange distinction in Christendom times between serious and nominal believers. In other words, between really super serious and committed believers and believers who are just kind of floating down the river. This distinction is not as easily found in an apostolic age. And because the church holds prestige and power in Christendom times, it can also be seen as this worldly. It can be used for selfish ends. And so the great sin in Christendom time, this is helpful, the great sin in Christendom time is the sin of hypocrisy, pretending to be more interested in things of faith and morality than I really am. Why would I, why would I be a hypocrite in this way? Because in a Christendom society, there are certain advantages, societal advantages and prestige, which come with the Christian faith and Christian conviction. 
Apostolic times also have their advantages and their disadvantages. First, the advantages. Since the church understands herself in, a Christ, in an apostolic time as being vastly different from the world around her, facing hostility and apathy, then individuals pay a price for believing. The church lacks cultural prestige. And so an advantage is that one finds less hypocrisy. The faith is more pure. It, it attracts the, the higher-minded. There's less corruption among believers, among the clergy, among bishops. There's just less corruption. And the experience of faith is more intense. It's more evidently life-changing. And this is a good thing. The primary need in an apostolic time is not for um, maintenance. The primary need is for apostolic witness and the building of a distinctively Christian cultural vision and way of life. So those are some of the advantages of Christendom. I'm sorry, of, of an apostolic time. There are some disadvantages to an apostolic time as well. In an apostolic time, the church must proceed without the benefits of a Christian culture. And thus, believers have to fight. They have to fight hard to maintain their spiritual and their moral vision. Material advantages can exist for those who don't go with the non with the Christ, with Christianity. So if if you collapse in your faith and you decide I'm just going to go along for the flow and I'm going to uh, accommodate myself to the secular or non-Christian view, there's certain advantages that you can maintain. And so in general there's less of a temptation to hypocrisy. The great temptation in an apostolic time is not to hypocrisy, it's to cowardice and to the exhaustion of individuals and institutions because it's just a constant battle which can drain your understanding of the joy and the conquering spirit of the gospel, replacing it with various forms of defeatism, isolationism, and overly rigoristic attitudes. And so this, I think, is one of the most helpful things in the book, that first of all, uh, the potency of an imaginative vision in a society is made clear. Secondly, the different ways of the church of engaging with a particular society is made clear in terms of the distinction between being in a Christendom mode and being in an apostolic mode, and that's gone into in much more detail all throughout the book. And then very clearly, some of the advantages of being in a Christendom situation, some of the disadvantages of being in a Christendom situation are made clear. And then some of the advantages of being in an apostolic uh, situation and some of the disadvantages of being in an apostolic situation are also made very clear in the book and brought out in such a rich way that one is able to, to notice things both in one's memory, if, if one, like me, grew up in the last gasp of Christendom, and, uh, and if, like all of us, uh, we're living in an apostolic time, we're able to see that more clearly too. It's important for us to know the times that we live in. So just a word about the times that we live in, our current climate. So we're living in a time which for a couple of hundred years, for a few hundred years, has been drifting away uh, increasingly from a Christian vision of things. There's a set of ideas which broadly go by the word or, or by the, the uh, label of the Enlightenment, which is an alternative imaginative vision of our culture. And that vision, the Enlightenment imaginative vision, uh, has, um, has first uh, turned in a hostile way against the Christian imaginative vision and has eventually, and with time, sort of won the field. 
it provides a fundamentally different vision of the world. And so, uh, and so we find ourselves now back in an apostolic time, in an apostolic mode. And there's a great danger for us in that. There's a danger that we might, as Christians, bear a Christendom mentality when we're in the midst of an apostolic age. This is often the case in the church, and it has catastrophic consequences. You see certain methods, certain ways of, of moving through the world and doing things that really worked well in a Christendom time are actually disastrous strategic mistakes if we try and do those same things or act in that same way in an apostolic time. And so we have to recognize that older patterns and institutional forms that bore fruit in the past in a Christendom culture might no longer do so today. We have to recognize that we're in an apostolic rather than in a Christendom mode and then engage people both within the church and outside of it in ways that are appropriate to our current climate. And if we don't do so, we'll see that the collapse will actually be quite severe you can point to certain examples, for instance. There are certain places that used to be the most Catholic places in the world, and they carried on, even though the culture and the cultural situation was shifting right underneath them. The, the church itself in those nations carried on solidly in a Christendom mode. And when the collapse came, the collapse was great. I'm thinking here about places like Belgium and Spain and Quebec and Ireland, places which just a generation or two ago were the most Catholic places in the entire world, which now, if you go to them, are some of the most secular places in the entire world. Because people who were believers, who were leading the church, were thinking in a Christendom mode when an apostolic mode or an apostolic time had broken upon them. So what we need now is we need to devise clear strategies for engagement in an apostolic mode. And the book spells out eight categories. Of course, there, there probably are more, but there's, there's sort of helpful advice and thought around eight different categories, eight different areas of uh, strategy that can be used. So these are some principles and attitudes upon which we can formulate a reasonable pastoral and evangelistic response to our present time. So first of all... Uh, we talk about gaining an apostolic attitude, how important it is to recognize the time and the context in which we live and to recognize it for what it is. In other words, we can't hide under a rock. We have to look and to engage with and understand our culture such that we're able really to engage it in an apostolic way with an apostolic attitude. Second, we need to refuse to be trapped by social analysis. Sociological surveys and numerical extrapolations, which we place so much hope and faith and trust in, they don't tell us very much about the future of the church. Uh, they can't capture the vitality of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, no matter what the statistics are telling us, no matter what the social analysis is saying, the Holy Spirit still has the ability to revive the fortunes of the church. And we trust in the promises of Christ, and so we need to refuse to be trapped by social analysis. And, uh, and just because we're looking at numbers that might sometimes look pretty pessimistic, we ourselves shouldn't be pessimistic. We should be, we should be full of hope. This is how, by the way, the first 11 apostles were after the Great Commission, 
after Jesus ascended into heaven and they looked around, they could have been completely overcome with discouragement and they would have had every reason to be, every reason, much more than we would have, and yet they didn't. They believed in the conquering power of the gospel. And so, for instance, they brought about, and God brought about through them and through their followers, the unexpected conversion of the Roman Empire. So first, gaining an apostolic attitude. Second, refusing to be trapped by social analysis. Third, maintaining and using our institutions differently. Of course, I have a very deep interest in this because schools and universities, uh, Catholic education is terrifically important to me in my priesthood and the work that I do. And I know it's important to all of you, too. And so we need to maintain and use our institutions differently. When the overarching cultural vision is non-Christian, then Christian institutions have to be more self-conscious, not less, but more self-conscious about their mission, their aims, and their inner spirit. And they need to be clear on how their inner culture will be best maintained against the tide. Also, we need to rethink priestly life and education in light of the current cultural context. Here we have to be sure that the priestly formation we provide to our young men who are called to the priesthood, provides a context for the sort of transformation of mind and vision which is necessary for an apostolic age. We have to make sure that priests are not laboring in enemy-held territory alone, but rather that they have the necessary support and the necessary communal structures in place. This is really important in lots and lots of different ways um, because uh, I think in a Christendom time, a priest makes sense. The role of the priest, for instance, and the cultural importance of the priest is just very clear. But in an apostolic mode, the priest doesn't make sense. Celibacy for the sake of the kingdom doesn't make sense. Simplicity of life doesn't make sense. And so the priest becomes sort of a strange, uh, incomprehensible figure. And so we need to be much more intentional about the way that we're forming priests. And I'm sorry, I skipped over one of them, which is number four. So number five was, is, um, is rethinking priestly life. Number four is establishing and strengthening practices that incarnate the Christian vision. The Christian vision is not something which comes automatically to an unbelieving world and to a fallen world. And so we need to be very thoughtful and careful and intentional about the practices um, that constitute Christian life and that foster the Christian imaginative vision. And we can think about various ways of doing that. But of course, uh, for instance, uh, inculcating a sacramental view of seeing the world allows people not just to believe in the doctrine, for instance, of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, but to really believe not just in a scientific way of seeing the world, but in a sacramental way of seeing the world. Catholics are famous because uh, because of our intent that everything has meaning, nothing has no consequence. Remember uh, Father John Henry, I'm sorry, John, Richard John Newhouse uh, once said, and I repeat this to students all the time, uh, spare me a gospel of easy love that, that makes my life a thing of no consequence. A gospel of easy love with no consequences that makes my life a thing of no consequence. Uh, and so... The uh, sixth strategy, then, uh, that the book brings out has to do with allocating resources with ap apostolicity in mind. In other words, a way of, of thinking about the way that our resources need to be deployed. When you're in maintenance mode, which is the primary habit of Christendom, 
then you're in a situation where you're able to deploy your resources in a way in which you're simply maintaining things. Building institutions in an apostolic time is like building a, a house in a gale wind. It's very different. And so as a result, you have to think very carefully about how you're going to pull back on certain fronts and how you're going to charge into certain fronts. It might mean, for instance, that some of the programs that you've spent money on forever need to be scaled back. It might mean that personnel, uh, priests, religious sisters, have to be deployed in other new strategic ways. But these resources have to be deployed with ap ap apostolicity in mind. Uh, seven, we have to be ready to put up with a certain apostolic messiness. So general conversion, especially among the young, can mean excitement. And there's a sense of growth and, and a sense of the immediacy of the power of the gospel. But this at times can manifest itself in unenlightened zeal or rigoristic attitudes, etc. Um, and these things can, can happen with great energy. So those who are in positions of authority, especially those who are entrusted with the youth, have to have a sense for the apostolic and have to be ready to put up with a certain amount of messiness and take risks in order for the church to be able to capture the wider culture. And then eighth, we should expect that cultural influence in the world in which we live in a time like this is going to be exercised primarily by apostolic witness. Remember that famous quote by uh, Pope Paul VI, where he said that modern man is more willing to listen to witnesses than to teachers, that we're not willing to listen to teachers, and if we listen to teachers, it's because they're witnesses. This shouldn't be taken to uh, apply, first and foremost, to great moral actions. Instead, uh, to, to impressive witness, uh, things like, take the case, for instance, of Mother Teresa, uh, whose missionaries of charity taught the world a new way of seeing the poor, of 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 seeing the poor in the distress of seeing Jesus in the distressing disguise, she said, of the poor. In other words, Mother Teresa and her sisters and all of us in an apostolic age are expected and needed to establish a manner of life that expresses to others a way of seeing things differently. So that brings us to sort of the culminating point of the book, which is that there's a key task in an apostolic time. And that key task, which all of our energies as individuals, as believers, as disciples, and certainly all of our energies in our institutions, in Catholic schools and Catholic universities, everything needs to be bent to the key task of conversion of the mind to a new way of seeing. So the new evangelization, which is proper to the apostolic age we find ourselves in, the new evangelization aims at the renewal of the mind, appealing to a completely different way of seeing things. Of course, the new evangelization is the old evangelization. It's the, it's the proclamation of the lordship of Jesus Christ. But we find ourselves in a time in which that proclamation needs to be made in a very compelling way. Conversion of the mind to a new way of seeing. So this vision, this completely different way of seeing things, offers a unique narrative concerning the great human drama, and it provides a foundation on which the moral and spiritual disciplines of the church find their place. Thus, it's a strategic mistake to preach only the moral vision of Christianity, which is what we oftentimes do 
Because first, the mind and the overall vision have to be transformed. There's a reason that so much of the church's moral teaching in our time falls on deaf ears, because it makes no sense according to the ruling vision of the society in which we find ourselves in. And so what we're trying to do here at the University of Mary, at least, and what the church is needing to do in our time, and we see this in the, in the, in the teachings of all the recent popes, is to reawaken the Catholic imaginative vision. That's the thing that we're trying to do and which we're so intent upon doing uh, at the University of Mary. And certainly there are so many people and institutions, places of goodwill, which are also intent upon this. And so this small book, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age, is a way uh, which we offer to all of you uh, to more clearly understand the moment in which we find ourselves, the task that set aside, that's the task that's set before us, and ways in which we can win the heart of all those around us in our lives over to the power of the promise of Jesus Christ and life with God life in the church, what all that means. And we hope as well in, this midst, in the midst of it all to, to equip people, believers, to better pass along the faith to this rising generation, which is a fundamental concern for all of us in the world of Catholic education and certainly for all of us as believers and as Christians and Catholics. And so I'm just really honored and humbled to be able to say just a little bit about this. We have a project which is the, of which this book is kind of a first uh, salvo, a first shot in the air of, and that project is called Prime Matters. Uh, that's a website which is going online in the month of December 2020, uh, and it's, you can find it at primematters.com. And I think you'll there find the whole purpose of the website is to awaken the Catholic imaginative vision. You'll find for yourself all kinds of resources, insight, and encouragement around this great task of reawakening the Catholic imaginative vision and what it means to live as a Catholic, a cheerful warrior, a joyful follower of Jesus in an apostolic age. It's more necessary now than ever before. Why don't we end just with a prayer to the Lord and to his mother to ask both of them to be with us in this great task. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O oh Jesus, we love you. We believe in you. We know that the story of your life is the story of our lives, and that your presence in the world, your saving acts of salvation for each of us, Give us the strength necessary to proclaim you to the whole world. God the Father, through you, has told an extraordinary story, the true story of who God is, of who we are, of what the world and our lives are all about. Help us, O oh Jesus, by your grace and by your mercy, to move in the world and witness in the world in such a way that we can make you known. Mary, our Mother, you who were the first disciple, who received the Lord Jesus into your heart, into your womb at the Incarnation, and who brought him into the world. You who today still are the perfect exemplar of a disciple, we ask you, O Mary, to pray for us. In your tenderness, in your motherly care and concern, be with all of us and fill us with your grace. 
We ask this as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Once again, I'm so honored by this opportunity and this invitation to say a little bit about this small book, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age, published by the University of Mary in 2020. God bless you all. God bless all the listeners to the St. Agnes podcast and all those who are involved in this important ministry.